uh, one of the things that we want is unity. We want to be able to get along. We want to be able to have different kinds of people come together and live in harmony and live in peace. That's, that's one of the things we want. It's used, uh, that idea or that desire of ours is used for advertising of, hey, look, this product can bring everybody together. Or look, this business brings everyone together. Coca-Cola or whatever it is. I'm sure you'll see some of that during the Super Bowl, that this specific thing, if you buy it, it brings all kinds of people together. Uh, It's used in advertising. It's used in various slogans that people have. It's, It's a desire that our culture has. We want unity. We want to get along. We want peace. We want genders and races and classes and all sorts of people to be able to get along, get together, and experience harmony and peace. It's something we want. We believe that if we have that, that'll lead to a deeper joy. It'll lead to less conflict and and more peace. It'll lead to uh, all, all sorts of beautiful things if we could have a society like that. But though we strive for that as an ideal, that's really hard to get, right? It's something that we strive for. It's something we want, but it's not easy. There's all sorts of initiatives that are done to try to work towards that. There's all sorts of activism that's done to try to work towards that. There's all sorts of trainings, diversity trainings, if you're in school or in your, at your employment that are trying to be done to work towards that. It's not easy. If it was easy, there wouldn't be all these slogans and education and trainings and things trying to be done to move towards that. It's, it's challenging. It is difficult to actually experience. We are an increasingly polarized society. We're increasingly experiencing divisiveness, division, hostility toward different groups and different people. That is increasing. And it's difficult to actually experience the harmony and the joy and the peace that we may long for. It's always been difficult. That's not a new thing, but it does at times feel like it is increasing in our society with social media and other things that pull us down a, you know, a rabbit hole of the algorithm feeding and encouraging hostilities and censoring certain things and highlighting certain things that it feels like it increases and gets more difficult. In fact, even in the last two years, most of us have felt that that's, the tension of that has increased even more starting maybe around 2020 with COVID and all the things that happened through that year. And it increased, got even more difficult, not just out there, but in the church. There was a book written last year in 2021, kind of after a lot of that stuff happened. And many people left churches and uh, somewhere estimated between a third and two thirds of people kind of exited from their church because of all the divisiveness and conflicts and disagreements around all sorts of the different issues that were prominent in those years. There was a book written last year to kind of encourage people of the need for church and what church is and how because of all the division, we shouldn't just exit. And I want to just read you the beginning of this excerpt from the intro of the book, because probably you have felt some of this. Maybe not today, but in the last two years, you have felt some of this. And it says, debates over masks, vaccines, and much else divided church members, trapped in their homes and glued to Facebook feeds, filled with dire warnings and conspiracy theories. But that's not all. 
Recent elections, for American readers at least, might have been even more divisive. How can Christians worship alongside voters with different priorities? Sure, Christians might share the same views on the Trinity, baptism, even eschatology, but what good is that when we feel more in common with our political allies who might not even be Christians? And the same goes for the causes of racial unrest. Why can unbelieving neighbors see the solutions so clearly, we might wonder, when the couple we used to sit behind at church every week promotes such ignorant and even dangerous views in their public postings? It's enough to make many think they could never be safe or comfortable returning to that same church. This was the experience that many of us have had over the last couple years, that many in the church have had. I, I talked to many people over the last couple years that said, literally said things like this. I want to be with people that think the same way I do. I want to be with people where I don't have to wonder where they stand on political issues and racial issues. I want to be with people that think the same. So I'm leaving. Multiple conversations with people in the last two years about things like that, just like this is articulating. So we may want unity, we may want peace, we may want harmony, but it's difficult in our world, and it's often even difficult within the church. But God's vision is more for us than that. What God wants to build in your life, what God wants to build in our life, is more than constant division and hostility and tension. God wants us to give God wants to give us the strength to love one another and to be united together. That is what he wants to do with people that are very different from us. Think about what if you could learn and have the power to talk with people different from you, to understand people different from you, to appreciate people different from you. What if we could have that strength and that power to love and unite and appreciate and have peace with people that even have deep differences from us. What Paul is going to tell us as we look at this section in Ephesians is that the key is we have to remember. If you want to have peace, if you want to have unity, he's going to say we have to remember three different things. So we're going to take a look at these things. And it's also important for me to point out, as Paul, the, even just the idea of remembering, what that means is that they already in some ways had unity and peace. They already had that. The church that Paul's writing to, in some way, they already experienced that. And you may feel that right now. You may feel like, I, I already have unity. I already have peace. I'm not, I don't think that the person sitting next to me or behind me or over there or over there, I don't think that they're crazy. I don't hate them. I, I feel a unity with them. You all look different somewhat. Some of you, I won't describe all of you, but you look different. And so there's some kind of unity and they have that, but it's easy to forget. It's easy when something begins to happen. It's easy when an issue rises to the surface to all of a sudden then have conflict. It is difficult to maintain. And so that's why Paul writes to them, even though they're already beginning to experience this and says, you got to remember if you want to keep this, if you want to maintain this, if you want to be stronger in this, if you, this, if you want this to grow, if you don't want things underlying in the surface just waiting for a moment to bubble out like 2020, if you, if you want it to actually under the surface be a growing peace and a growing unity, you have to remember. And so he's going to walk us through 
three different things that we need to remember. And the first is this. We need to remember where you're from. Remember where you are from. People sometimes say this. Maybe you've heard people say this to you, or maybe you've thought it, or sometimes it's in movies or in songs or books where people will say something like, hey, don't forget where you came from, right? Don't forget where you came from. Sometimes people will even say it about themselves to kind of prove their authenticity as to say, hey, I haven't forgotten where I came from. I'm still Jenny from the block, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) So sometimes people still say, hey, I have not forgotten where I came from. And I'm still Caleb from the block, in case anyone's watching. Just remember. Okay. So sometimes we forget where we came from. Sometimes we forget where we came from. And that phrase is used to say, there's things about your past that can actually help you today. There's things about your past that if you remember, will give you a humility for today. They will give you the strength for today. There's things about your past, if you remember them they will allow you to live better in the present. Paul gives us the same thing. He says this, Ephesians 2, we'll read this whole section, but just pieces as we go along. He says, so then, remember, and then this whole section, this is what he wants us to remember. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. So let me just pause really quick. Jews and Gentiles. These are the two groups. And Gentiles really is just a translation that means the nations. It was the Jewish people that God chose from the family of Abraham, and then all the rest of the nations. And the sign of the Jewish people was circumcision. That it was represented that they belonged to the covenant of Abraham. That all of the offspring belonged to God, his chosen people. And so Uh, As a term of derision, often the Jews would call the Gentiles the uncircumcised, or literally, this is the foreskin, is what they would call them. So that was kind of their slang against them, as a term of derision, against those that were not Jewish. Jews and Gentiles, the Jews and all the other nations, they did not get along. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They would pray in their regular prayers, God, thank God that I am not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not one of them. So he says, remember, and he's writing to a church that is mainly Gentiles, but there would be people that are Jewish as well. Remember, one time you were in Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. He tells them to remember where they came from, and he gives three different things here. The first, he says, is you were without Christ. No Savior. Christ means, by the way, anointed one or Messiah. And he says you were without Christ, without a Savior. If you remember, if you've been here from chapter 1, he talks about all the blessings that we have in Christ. All the different things that we get to receive because of the Messiah, because of Christ. That we receive adoption, that we receive salvation, that we receive redemption, that we're freedom from our sins, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He walks through kind of all these different things that you get with Christ. But he says, before you were without Christ, you didn't have that. Anything that Christ brings into your life, you didn't used to have. 
No Savior. None of the blessings that are found in Him. Missing all of that. He says you were without Christ. And He says you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Saying that they were not a part of God's chosen people. Not a part of God's chosen family. They were excluded. God chose to work with the Jewish people and said, you are my people. You are my nation. And he made certain promises to them, made covenants with them. And if someone was a Gentile, they were not a part of that. They didn't belong to God's people. They were on the outside. They didn't belong. Now, most of them didn't care. They didn't know what they were missing. But on the inside, to say, we are the people that God has said we belong to him. We are the people that God has made promises to. Any promise that you've ever read in the Old Testament, anything beautiful, anything about God being present with his people or promising redemption for his people or promising rescue for his people or promising restoration for his people or promising that he would be with them and work in them and any of the stuff that God promised, anything that you've ever read that has encouraged you from the Old Testament about fearing not or God's presence or things through the Psalms and forgiveness, I mean, all the different things. He's saying, you, you, none of those promises were for you. You didn't have them. And you didn't belong to his people. You were excluded from those things. No true community. And he says, you were without hope and without God in the world. Without hope and without God. Now, people that were Gentiles had many different gods. If you think about your lessons from middle school of uh, Greek gods and Roman gods and all the different pantheon of gods that existed. They had many different gods, but Paul is saying they didn't know the true God. They didn't, kind, they didn't have the kind of hope that came along with knowing the true God. Some of you maybe have felt this and lived like this in your life where the linking of without God and without hope makes sense to you. Where there's certain things that you have tried and failed at there's certain things that you've put your hope in and it didn't work out. There's certain things that you pursued and tried to find happiness in and tried to find fulfillment in and, and yet were constantly left with some feelings of insecurity. I don't know what life is going to be like. I don't know if I'll actually be able to experience joy and happiness and peace and fulfillment and contentment and feeling no hope because there ultimately is no no relationship with the true God. Things might, we might latch on to something for a second and we feel some sense of hope, but it's ultimately unstable. He says, this is where you were, without hope, without God in the world. Now, this is just the starting point of what he's going to walk us through. And so just pause there and think about, do you remember where you're from as it relates to this? Do you remember Maybe you remember before you were a Christian. Maybe you can remember that. And you can, some of those things resonate with you. Yeah, I didn't have the kind of community that I have now. I didn't have the hope that I have now. Doesn't even necessarily mean that everything is perfect in your life right now, but you would say, yeah, I didn't have the hope that I have right now. I didn't have the confidence that I'm able to have now. I didn't have the Christ and the blessings that I have now, maybe some of you can look at your life and remember a time when you were not a Christian. 
For others of you, you grew up in the church. As far as you can know and experience, you've kind of been around faith and Christianity most of your life. And so you can't necessarily point to a time where it was, okay, yes, I went from without this to to this. And yet what Paul is telling us is this was our condition. This was what our destination would be. So you can even say, this is where I would have been if it wasn't for what he did. For some of you, you you've maybe have been a Christian, but you still have experienced seasons of darkness where you didn't have community or you weren't experiencing the blessings with Christ that you could have from immaturity, from disobedience, from a lack of repentance, from all sorts of different things. You didn't have the hope that you have now. So sometimes it's just looking at growth in our life and what God's done. And we can say, I, I can remember where I came from. Paul says this is a starting place of unity and peace with others because when you remember where you are from or where you would be, it reminds you of how much a gift what you have now is. And as you are filled with thankfulness, that begins to pave the way for peace and unity with others. That as you can say, I remember where I would be, but God was merciful to me. I remember where I'm from. I remember what happened. I remember what life was like. That's the beginning place. And then he says to remember what, to remember what he did. So it's not just remember where you are from, it's remember what Jesus, what God, what he did. And here's what the next part says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Now, here is the condition that he, oh, sorry, there's this part too. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news, this is Jesus, of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now here's what he says our condition was to start. You were far away. There was hostility between God, between one another. See, the greatest punishment that the Bible gives to us, the greatest, the greatest uh, experience of pain that a human could have isn't just the suffering and the sickness and the death that we have in this world. It is our separation from God. It is being far away from God. If God is the source of all life, if God is the source of all blessing, if God is the source of all joy and peace and comfort and refuge and all of these amazing things that we could say about God, then the ultimate pain is being away from him, being separate from him. And, and not even just being away like you lost him, but being in hostility to him. Being, as Romans says, an enemy of God. He says this is what our condition was. Not close to God. Now at times, you may have felt this in your life, or at times you may even feel it now in your life. You may not always articulate it as, I feel far away from God, although I've had many conversations with people that say those words. But you may just experience it in guilt. You may experience it in shame, 
and feeling something is wrong, something is off. When we experience those feelings, when we experience those realities, that is the subjective experience of being far away, of being in hostility with God. Sometimes people experience it in just feeling like God is angry with me or feeling uncertain about how God feels about you. Wondering, where do I stand with God? Where do I stand with Him? Maybe you could even think about that right now. When God thinks of you, how is He feeling? Disappointed? Angry? Indifferent? Those kinds of subjective experiences is part of what it means to feel far away or to be far away or to be in hostility. Sometimes we experience it in a different way. If people are feeling far away from God, the subjective experience of that may actually be a longing for transcendence, a longing for something that is bigger than you, to connect to something, maybe it's the mountains or something that is majestic, something that's wonderful, and and we long for that because maybe we don't even realize it, but it's because we feel far away and cut off from the ultimate transcendent. This is the condition that we find ourselves in before God does something. How can that condition be overcome? How can a condition of being far away or separate or hostility be overcome? How does that change? And there's two ways that oftentimes we either believe or that we live functionally as if we believe of how that gap is overcome. One of them is if I am separate from God or if I feel distant from God, if I'm objectively in hostility with God, I need to live a good way, do the right things, do my best to follow Him, to obey Him, to listen to Him, and then Him and I will be good. Another way is if we are over here, we can just kind of believe, you know what? God's a nice guy. God's a nice guy. We're kind of distant. We're kind of far away. But God's nice. He's a good guy. He's not going to let that go on. Neither of those are true. And ultimately, what both of those do is lead to an insecurity on our part. Because we're never actually going to be sure. If it's kind of just dependent on how good I do, how good is good enough? How much have you done? And what if it's a great day on Tuesday, but a crappy day on Wednesday? Are you reset? What if you would really tried your best? You had the best Christian day you've ever had. You woke up listening to K-Love. You read your Bible. You prayed. You evangelized a random person, usually on the airport, in the airplane, right? You didn't just kind of put your headphones on, but you told them about Jesus. You did all the best Christian things you can imagine. You wore a Christian t-shirt, even though people were going to make fun of you. You did all the things, okay? But then the next day, it was pretty bad. You yelled at your kids. You listened to Metallica. I don't know. You know, I'm just, That's drilled into my head as a young kid. That that's satanic. I don't know. Maybe it is. I haven't listened to it. So you, you did all the bad things, right? You did all the things you weren't supposed to. So now, are you reset? You're going to feel unstable. 
you're going to feel insecure. And even if it's based on God being nice, that's going to be insecure. Because an emotional God that's just kind of, oh, I'm nice, we, we intuitively know that that could change also. God was nice, but if I worn out my welcome, God was nice, but if I, now I'm on my third chance, I know God gives second chances, but I don't know about third and fourth chance, and we're just going to kind of feel unstable. We need something better than that. And this is where Paul says, remember what he did. He gives us something better. He says, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then later, that we're reconciled through the cross, referring to the same thing here. He says, it's, you were over here, but he did something. He did something objective. It's not just an emotional experience that you have about, it's not just an emotional experience that he had, and it's not just your actions and what you do. Jesus did something objective. The blood of Christ changed things. The cross changed things. Remember where you were and remember what he did. Not what you did and not how he feels. Remember what he did. Something objective was done. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, meaning a substitute in our place for our sin died and atonement, the word literally means at one, meant. He did something objective. His blood paid for our sin, which means we should die for our hostility to God, for our separation from God, for our, we've been talking about the definition of sin as rejecting and ignoring God, living without reference to God. That because of that, that condition, we should live apart from Him forever and get what we deserve. But, he did something. His blood. Blood is the severity showing the punishment that we deserve is death. And he died in our place for our sin. Something objective was done. Which is why the Bible says it would actually be unjust of God to still be in hostility with us. Because we sing a song called Jesus Paid It All. If the debt has been paid for, it would be unjust of the debtor to continue to hold you accountable towards it. If you pay off your debt on your credit card, and then someone comes and breaks your knees, and you say, I paid it. I'm sorry, Chase. And they say, I'm breaking your knees. And you say, I paid my debt. I got my air miles. I, I, please don't. And they say, I, we're just going to still, we're still going to execute judgment on you. It wouldn't make any sense. So the Bible says it would be unjust of God to punish you or to hold you accountable for your sin in a condemning way because the blood of Christ on the cross has already paid for the sin. Something objective was done for you, for me. That is what he did. And what that creates then is reconciliation. We are brought near by the blood of the Christ, by the blood of Christ. We are reconciled to God. We have access in the Spirit to the Father. 
if the worst thing that can happen is we are separate and we're in hostility, the best thing that can happen is we are brought near and we are reconciled and we have access now to God. That's a total change in what the condition is. It isn't, I love the idea of forgiveness, that God forgives us. That, that's a beautiful idea. And justification, that we are, we are declared good, no more guilt. All of that is good. But I love, personally, the doctrine of reconciliation even more. Because that is the whole reason that forgiveness happens. Jesus dies on the cross in your place for your sin. Why? So that he can bring you near. So that you can be reconciled to him. So that you can have access to him. So that there's no more insecurity of Am I good with God? Am I bad with God? How'd today go? How's tomorrow going to go? I'm not sure. How nice is he feeling today? Did he wake up on the Old Testament side of the bed or the New Testament side of the bed? Like, how's it going? You don't have to worry about that anymore. It says the blood of Christ brought you near. You have access. Listen, let me say this too. I don't know if anyone in here is wondering or exploring faith or maybe it's just conversations you have with people. Sometimes people say something like this. I believe in a loving God right? Most people in our world believe in God. And most people that believe in God don't say, I believe in God. I believe he's an evil God. Most people don't think that. Most people say, I believe in a loving God. But do you know that one of the components of love, that most of, we know this even just at a human level, that one of the components of love is that you give yourself, right? You let people know you. You let people into relationship with you. You let people have access to you. We would never say that there was a loving relationship if there wasn't access. We would never say that it was a loving relationship if people weren't brought near and close. And yet, really, it's only in Christianity that we experience a God like that. A God that says, I'm not just giving you kind of a, a nebulous nirvana experience of the ultimate. I'm giving you me. I'm not just giving you paradise and heaven a prize of a place you go to, I'm giving you me. I'm bringing you near to me. I'm giving you myself. And so it really is impossible to have an idea of a truly loving God without a God that actually brings us in to himself. And here that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He did something objective by his blood not just because of God's emotional experience, not just because of our work, but by his blood, Jesus gives to us a better condition than without God, without hope, hostility, enmity. He gives us reconciliation. So the question is settled then. Where do I stand with God? How does God feel about me? What's my eternal destiny? Those questions can be settled because you have the blood that gives you unity and access with God. And then those things, what he did here, what he did here actually then changes our horizontal relationships as well. What he did there changes and provides not just unity and access with God, but it provides and creates unity with one another. That's what it says happened. Both groups are made one. He tore down the dividing wall. He makes one new man from the two. 
So he brings, as he gives us access with him, as he clears the way of hostility against him, what that does is create unity with one another. Part of how you could think about this is that Jesus, and Jesus actually uses this language in the book of John, that Jesus is a door. And both groups go through the same door. He unites them. So now, because we both walk through Jesus, we are united together as one. Both groups are made one. Because now it's not Jews and Gentiles. It's people that have walked through the door of Jesus. One group. Call those Christians. One new man from the two. It says he tore down the dividing wall. Now, when you think about the dividing wall, there actually was a literal wall in the temple that divided Jews from Gentiles. You can just take a look and read this really quick. But <laughs> it, it said, this is, they have this in a museum, this is an inscription, but that warns Gentiles that if you cross over, it's on you what's going to happen. The condemnation will be on you. You're, you're taking your life into your own hands if you cross this wall. So there was a literal dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles that was metaphorical or symbolic of deeper realities that separated them. Paul says that they was, there was a dividing wall and that what Jesus did made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. So this is kind of a confusing phrase. Let me explain it for a minute. It's not saying that God's law is useless or that God's law has been destroyed and doesn't matter anymore. What it is saying is that there were things in God's law that made that dividing wall of separation real. And there's different interpreters, different commentators that you could read on this in kind of different ways. But essentially, there's kind of two different views or sometimes a combined view. There's aspects in the Old Testament of ceremonial law. So I'll just give you a quick little lesson. That God's law, many commentators look at it and it's divided into three different parts. The ceremonial law, the civic law, which governed how they lived as a society, as a theocracy, and then the moral law. Think the Ten Commandments, but more than that, but just what God's will is described in the moral law. The ceremonial law, which would include things like foods that you eat and don't eat, various things that made you pure, ways that you worshipped, saying, that doesn't separate you anymore, because God isn't trying to keep you separate and clean from the nations. Other people take this, and I think it's a combination of the two. Other people take this and say it's not just the ceremonial law, but it's the entire law, but in its condemning force, that those that are outside of God's people, the Jews, are condemned. And so that would create a separation between people. But to say both that the ceremonial law and the condemning power of the law, that if you do not keep it, you are condemned, are done away with in Jesus. Because in Jesus, if you walk through the door of him, you are made clean. And in Jesus, you are no longer condemned based on your ability to keep the law, but based on what he did to keep the law on your behalf on the cross. He kept the law perfectly for you. And so the condemning power is no longer in place. 
And so the dividing wall, both literal and what it pointed to, is gone. And it creates a unity, which means that people are no longer separated, but they are one new man. Both groups are made one. They are one, no longer separated by their ethnic identity, no longer separated by their righteousness level and ability to keep the law, but they are made one. And that results in also peace. They are made one, which results in peace. Jesus is our peace, and he proclaimed the good news of peace, and it creates peace when we are made one. No more divisions. When those things are present, when there's separation, we experience hostility. When there's unity, we experience peace. This is what Jesus did. Paul says we need to remember where we're from, and we need to remember what he did. So think about your life. Where is peace or unity difficult for you? Is it race? Do you look at other races and experience some sense of hostility or lack of peace? Is it with various classes, people that are poorer than you or wealthier than you, and you feel some hostility, you feel some disunity? Is it personalities? Is it sin that's been done against you? It's really hard for you to actually be at peace with people and you experience conflict with people. Where is unity and peace difficult? Paul says, remember what he did. Remember what he did. He reconciled us, which means there should be no more racism, no more classism. And it means there should be forgiveness for sins that are done against us. Because people will sin against you. But we can make peace because he made peace with us. It leads us to forgive. When we remember what he did for us, it helps us to go, I'm one with God and I'm one with others. I'm able to be at peace with people. I'm able to make peace with people. I'm able not to view myself as separate and distinct and in hostility with people. So here's what you do. You, you remember what he did and you preach it to your heart. Just like it said, Jesus came preaching peace. You preach this to your heart where you struggle with this, where you need to remember this, where you experience some of the stuff I said in the opening, where you experience racial or political or policy or whatever kind of division, where you experience that, you preach and remind yourself of where you're from and what he did to bring unity what he did to forgive them and yourself. It's hard to be in hostility with someone if you remember what God did for them also. If you go, I know God forgave them. I know God loves them. I know God gave them access. I know that God brought them near, and I really don't like them. That's hard to do. So remember. And then finally, he says, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember what he did to change that. And now, remember who you are today. Remember who you are. Now that you've been brought near, now that you've been given access, 
now that He's given you peace, who are we? Who are you as an individual? Who are we as the church? Oftentimes, it is our identities that create conflict. People talk about identity politics. Now, sometimes people talk, and sometimes we say this kind of sarcastically, but we also use it in real language where we talk about them or they. Who is them? Who is they? Oh, those people. And those are the ones. It's our identities. I'm not like them. It's often, sometimes we it create conflict because we say things like, this is just who I am. And because here's who I am, that's just who I am. Love it or hate it. Oftentimes, it is our identities that create conflict. Paul says we need to remember who we are. If you forget who you are, you will end up in conflict. If you forget who you are, you will not be at peace with other people. If you forget that is what happened in 2020 and 2021. People forgot who they were and went bonkers. They forgot. Truly, if you are a Christian, when you forget who you are, everything crumbles. And I know that some of that kind of, we're over the curve of that, but other days are coming. And if you forget who you are, you will lose your way. Here's what he says. Here's who you are. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the starting point. He says you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer separate, you are part of God's kingdom. You belong. That's who you are. You are a citizen, full rights, belonging to God's kingdom, living under his rule, which should take any political identity we have and relativize it. It should mean that you can work for politics, you can work for policies, those things are important but we shouldn't worry about them. We shouldn't let them rule us because we're a part of a new citizenship. We're a part of a new kingdom. Your primary identity has to be that, that I am a citizen of God's kingdom. And so yes, work in line with policies that represent the values of God. Yes, vote in line with that. But all politics should be relativized in their importance. You're a citizen of God's kingdom. That's who you are. Can't forget that. This is written to people living in the middle of Rome whose policies were not good, right? And he's saying, yeah, but you have a different citizenship. Your primary citizenship is you're a member of God's kingdom. And then all of these all of these increase in relational closeness, by the way. First, you are a citizen of a kingdom, but you're also a member of God's household. You see how that relationally increases. You're a part of God's kingdom. You're a part of God's family. You're not just a citizen, you're a family member. You're a part of God's household. 
His, so listen, God, Jesus' blood defines us now. That is why, and I don't have time to get into all this, but the closest relationship that existed oftentimes in the ancient world was actually the brother-sister relationship. It was the brother-sister relationship that was often considered the very closest of relationship. And so when Christians began to call each other brother and sister, that, that's just normal to us, even in the church and in culture. Hey, bro, hey, but, but at that point, to say, no, you actually are brothers and sisters. That was revolutionary. To talk about, we, we are a part of the same family now. We are in the same household now. That it's not my DNA that most closely bonds me with people, but it is the blood of Jesus that most closely bonds me with people. It's not who our ancestors were, but it's who our Savior is that most closely bonds us together. What would be different if we believed that? If you believed that you are most closely bonded to people, not by their upbringing, not by where they come from, not by their skin, not by the neighborhood, but because... They share the same blood with you in Christ. What would change? It should change a lot of things if we actually viewed each other as brothers and sisters. There wouldn't be any racial tension among Christians, if that's true. There wouldn't be any class tension. It would change a lot of things if we believe that. It would mean that we would seek to understand people that were different from us. We would seek to understand them because they are my brother and sister. I'm not going to just treat them as, oh, you're in that group and I'm in this group. And so you're just coming from that perspective. And I'm, no, I would say, you're my brother. I want to understand you. Help me to know. Help me to learn. We would have a different kind of compassion and a different kind of sincerity and a different kind of interest in people instead of just a label. If you are a member of God's household, it is your primary identity, being a Christian. That's your primary identity. And if we feel more affection, more understanding, more compassion, more identification with any other group, something's off. I... Um, well, I'm sorry, I don't have time. All right, so um, the next sermon is similar, so maybe I'll save it. <clears throat> Not because I just repeat myself, but Paul does, so take it up with him. Um, <clears throat> where, is, where am I? Okay, so it would change that. It would also change how we view church. Church is not just an activity or a place or a, a building we come to, but it's a family. That would change. That it's not just kind of an event that we're showing up to. But what if you really treated and believed, these are my brothers and sisters. If we actually view this as a family, that's different for how we approach church. It means that we're being close. It means we're stepping into relationship. 
It means also in family, we're supposed to assume the best about one another. So it changes how we view what church is. And then the final image he gives or picture he gives is that we are a holy temple and says, in him you are being built together for God's dwelling. So you're a part of God's kingdom, you're a part of God's family, and actually God dwells within you. That's even the levels of intensity, the levels of closeness increase. He says that you, the church, there's other places in the Bible that talk about an individual Christian as the Holy Spirit filling them and God's temple, but this is referring to God's people, the church, saying you are God's temple. And the temple was the place where God was known, where people came to meet with God, where God was experienced, where if you wanted to experience God's peace, God's joy, the assurance of forgiveness, it's where sacrifices happen, the closeness with God, all of those things, you go to the temple. He says, now the church is the temple. The church is the place where we experience the closeness, the nearness of God, that we are being built into a temple, that God dwells in us here now. This is a holy place. This is a temple because God's church is the temple. And he says it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important stone in ancient buildings. Everything else kind of linked onto that. Some of these stones, if you look up, were massive. I mean, multi-multi-tons, huge things. It says Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything in the church is built on him. And it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Again, some people interpret that differently. Is that Old Testament, New Testament? Is that the apostles that are also considered prophets? Is it, is it the apostles and prophets, kind of different groups within the New Testament? But all of it saying, all of this is saying, built on God's word. Built on God's word. Built on who Jesus is as revealed and taught through the apostles and the prophets. Which means the church is God's temple built on God's word. Which means we believe the Bible, which means you don't get peace and you don't get unity and you don't get family apart from the Bible. Sometimes people want unity, they want peace, and they want harmony, and they want it in just kind of a, let's just all get along. I know the Super Bowl is today. I remember when I was a kid seeing Michael Jackson do the Super Bowl, you know, I'm dating myself a little bit, but seeing Michael Jackson do the Super Bowl and singing kind of, we're the children of the world and just peace, everybody hold hands. Apart from being built on the word of God, you can never actually have the peace that we long for. You can never have the peace apart from saying we're going through the same door. We're unified by the same teaching. We're unified by the same person. That's what brings us together. Him, his work for us, his word ruling us. He says that you are now, if you are in God's church, part of his temple. So here's what all of this is saying under remember who you are. That God is building something. In number, the, the temple idea of it saying God is building this is numeric, but also that God is building an experience that you can have of living under God's kingdom, of living in God's family, of living in a place where we experience his joy, his grace, unity. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for your marriage, for your family, for your experience of church, that you experience 
I'm part of a family. I'm a part of God's kingdom. I'm a part of actually a temple where I, I know the joy and the assurance of salvation and forgiveness and nearness. I, I know that. Listen, apart from that, you know, this might sound like a joke, but what's a, the setup of it might? What's a Christian? What do you call a Christian that's not a part of a temple? Just a brick. That's all. Like if you're not a part of the temple, you're just a brick. Nobody ever walked by a brick and went, wow, that's really beautiful, amazing. And Christians that are disconnected from the temple are a brick. You never get to actually fully experience what God wants to do in your life. You never experience what he wants to do through your life. All of these levels of imagery are this increasing intensity of closeness, part of the same kingdom, part of the same family. You're actually cemented together with with whatever they use, with grout and mud and stuff. You're stuck together. You are experiencing together as you're stuck together all the closeness of what it means to be a temple. Which is why this quote might sound kind of harsh, and usually when I want to say something harsh, I give a quote. So here's what he says. Uh, This is Pastor J.D. Greer, author, pastor. He says, Thus, when people ask me, how much should I be involved in the church? My answer to the extent that you want God to work in your life. In fact, I'd be so bold to say that you have no right to ask God for the help of God if you intentionally separate yourself from the means of that help. God, I need direction in my life. God says, ah, that wisdom is from the Spirit, and the Spirit is housed in the body of people known as the church. God, I need help in my marriage. Again, in my church. God, I'm lonely. God says, go to church. God, I don't understand you. Go to church. If you want God to work in your life, you have to be part of the church. You see, sitting on the sidelines of the church, even if you were hearing the best sermons in the world, you guys know what that's like, means that you're (laughs) experiencing only a small fraction of what God wants you to know. You have to be involved, very involved. That is what it means, all of these images. God is building a temple. So what do you need to remember? What, is it, what happens when we remember who we are? It means can't have casual relationships. Can't means casually be connected to the church. It means each of you matters in building what God is building. You're an important citizen. You're an important stone in the temple. You're an important member of a family. Each of you matter to what God's doing. And it also means, back to the book, one last quote, is that different is good. Here's what they say. It might seem easier to look for a church where everyone thinks, votes, and sins the same way you do. It's better for your spiritual growth, however, to hunker down in a fellowship of difference, to honor people whose abilities differ from yours, to hope all things in love, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to respect the zealot or tax collector sitting next to you, You want to find a church that grabs this world's attention? Find a church that looks like the world to come. That's what God's building. That's what happens when we remember who we are. And when it feels difficult, when it's hard to live that unity out, that's what we need. Who am I? We have to remember. We want unity. To get along, experience peace. I think it is getting difficult. And it may get even more and more 
difficult, outside and inside. I don't know if that's something you're struggling with right now, harmony and peace and how you view people or just in your own family, your own relationships. We have to remember where we came from. Be filled with thankfulness for what he did. Remember what he did and how that gives us a peace and a unity with him and others. Remember who we are and the closeness that he paid for. We're going to take communion in a moment. Communion is for Christians where we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us to take us away from alienation and separation and to give us reconciliation, to give us access, to give us family, to give us unity, to give us peace with him and with one another. That's what Jesus did. That was the cost to buy this for us. And so as you take communion, remember what he did. Remember who you were and who you are. And use that time to confess if you need to. To confess to God where you've lived in tension or where you've not made peace. Maybe even not been at peace with him. Maybe if you're not a Christian, confess your life of separation from you. Use that time to remind yourself as you drink and eat. Remind yourself to thank Him for what He did. Thank Him for what He bought for you. We want peace. We want unity. This is what gives. This is what creates in the church and outside. I'll say this finally. Dion mentioned it in the announcements, but we have a membership class coming up in a couple weeks. That really is one of the specific ways that you can say, I, I want that level of closeness. I don't want to be a brick. I don't want to be on the outside. I want, I want that level of closeness. I've encouraged you to take that course. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything. Let me pray for us. Take communion when you're ready. And then Father, I thank you today. You give us access to you. You give us reconciliation. You give us closeness and nearness and peace. And you give us a family to belong to, a nation under you to belong to. You dwell with us. Thank you. I pray, Father, that you would help our children to live in this peace, to forgive Make sure to seek to understand one another, treat each other as brothers and sisters, to grow and closer to And I pray for those that struggle with an insecurity of how you feel about them and where they stand with you, that even now you would assure them that you bought them with your blood and brought them with you.